Hi, welcome to episode 12 of The History Files. We're recording this on May 5th, 2015, and I'm Gordon Fry. In the news, I'd like to mention that today we're recording this, it's Cinco de Mayo. It's a holiday much like St. Patrick's Day in that it's celebrated far more outside its country of origin by expatriates than it is within the country of origin. Uh, for a brief background on Cinco de Mayo, the holiday celebrates the victory of Mexican forces on the, in May of 1862 against French invaders at the Battle of Puebla. Actually, the town was Puebla de los Angeles. Uh, the French under Napoleon III, along with Spain and Britain, had landed troops in Veracruz to secure, uh, to secure loans that Mexico was uh, in default for. Spain and Britain negotiated with Mexico, but withdrew. But Napoleon III, uh, he had some bigger and better ideas, uh, and he continued in, on into Mexico City. The idea was to set up a Mexican empire under the tutelage of France, uh, and an Austrian archduke named Maximilian was installed as emperor. Along the road to the conquest lay Puebla. Although Mexican forces were commanded by a Texas-born general named Ignacio Zaragoza Seguin, the real hero of the battle was Porfirio Diaz. Now, Porfirio Diaz is a fascinating guy. He used his fame to secure himself the presidency for life of Mexico, from 1876 to 1911, a period that is called by historians the Porfiriato. It is of note that the French-backed Empire of Mexico, which collapsed in 1866 once the U.S. was no longer uh, engaged in uh, and rather distracted by the Civil War, um, was not the first empire of Mexico. It's actually the second Mexican empire. The first Mexican empire was actually established by Agustin de Iturbide, who was a Spanish officer uh, of Mexican birth, who, when, um, when Mexico achieved its independence in 1821, he established himself as the, as the emperor. Um, he didn't last too long. Uh, but anyway, next time you're on some you know, Jeopardy or something kind of show. And they say, who was the first emperor of Mexico? You can say, Agustin de Iturbide. You'll win. The Mexican Revolution, which ousted uh, Porfirio Diaz, lasted from 1911 until 1923, or thereabouts. Um, and it caused enormous disruptions and suffering and it also resulted in no less than two incursions by the United States into Mexico. The first one was a naval incursion. It was uh, the United States Navy shelled and then took 
for a period of time the Mexican port city of Veracruz on the Gulf Coast um, due to some sort of insult to the flag that President Wilson decided not to accept an apology for. Uh, Marines and sailors were sent ashore after a brief bombardment and they took over the customs house um, and there was eh, some brief fighting but you know the Mexican soldiers fought back, Mexican civilians fought back. It wasn't exactly a fair fight though. Uh, but the second incursion was in 1916 and that was by um, General Blackjack Persian who led several regiments of cavalry in an incursion is called the punitive expedition uh, and it, their rationale behind this invasion was to track down and um, capture or at least disperse the troops of uh, Generalissimo uh, Pancho Villa uh, who had invaded the United States in a raid on Columbus, New Mexico which actually was over a gun running operation that went bad. Anyway, fascinating stuff. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. For a media section, I thought I'd mention a couple of films that deal with various invasions of Mexico. The first is They Came to Cordura. It was filmed in 1959 under the directorship of Robert... Rosen stars Gary Cooper, Rita Hayworth, Van Heflin, and Tab Hunter. It's uh, it takes place during the punitive expedition, and um, it's it's really a character study about how people behave under stress. But um, but it's interesting in that it it's one of the very few films you're going to find that uses this punitive expedition of 1916. For its um, for its background, um, if if you're interested in the equipment and some of the attitudes and stuff of the day, it's it's actually a pretty darn decent movie. As far as actual plot and all that, well, maybe not so good, but it's a fun film. Uh, it's available on Amazon through Instant Video, and um, but that's but not on Prime. And it's also available through Netflix, but disc only. The other film I want to mention is Major Dundee from 1965. It's a Sam Peckinpah film starring Charlton Heston, Richard Harris, and Jim Hutton. It takes place during the American Civil War, however, in which Major Dundee, played by Charlton Heston, uh, takes a large number, well, he does an invasion of Mexico uh, to deal with the French, which is actually kind of an interesting thing. It actually does have some of the French troops he has to deal with. Um, and Richard Harris portrays the leader of some Confederate prisoners of war who are galvanized. Uh, it is an interesting term that was used by uh, people in the, the period during the Civil War the Union had lots and lots and lots of Confederate prisoners of war, and they didn't know exactly what to do with them other than let them rot in prison camps. However, they also had an Indian war. Well, they had several Indian wars on their hands, uh, wars against the Sioux, wars against the Cheyenne, wars against the Apaches, and so they made a deal with these Confederate prisoners of war, said, 
you wear the blue, we promise you that you will only have to fight Indians. We will not send you against the South, because we don't trust you anyway in that regard. But we will put you out in the middle of nowhere, let you fight Indians and possibly get killed, as opposed to sitting in this prisoner of war camp and rotting until we get around to trading you or the war ends. So, anyway, in that regard, it's a very true-to-form or true-to-life story of having these galvanized Yankees go off on an expedition. And probably not quite so true-to-life in that they invaded Mexico and got to fight French lancers trying to get back across the Rio Grande. But it's... It's still a pretty good film. Mm. Again, it's a it's Sam Peckinpah, so uh, expect it to be kind of bloodthirsty. It too is available on Amazon Instant Video, not Prime, however, and also is available on Netflix, Netflix, but disc only. History lives again. So for our main topic today, I want to talk about some conditions for revolution. A few weeks ago, our topic was the fate of empires, and we talked about some of the various reasons for collapse, but not all collapses are from internal forces, not all internal, internal revolutions cause collapses. But what I do want to talk about is that some of these revolutions that occur, um, occur for some very specific, notable and note and um, almost predictable reasons. One of the recipes for disaster in any country is to have a very powerful office, but have it be inhabited by either emperor, uh, king, whatever, who is a personally weak individual. History is full of such examples, but we're going to focus on just a few of them. Uh, to point out the validity of this argument. For my first example, I want to use Charles I of England. He was a second son. He was not really trained to be the king. Uh, But he was imbued with the idea of the divine right of kings. He was unfortunate enough to have lived through the age of the Puritan Revolution. And this, while remaining dedicated to handing down the rights and power that he inherited onto his sons. Uh, add to this a less than stellar intellect and a very and a stubborn streak, and you have this a recipe for disaster. Um, he had quarrels with Parliament over money and over the church structure and various attempts to impress the um, Church of England bishops on the Church of Scotland. Of course, they were Presbyterians, didn't want bishops. It's a very strange situation, of course, where Charles was King of England and King of Scotland, but England and Scotland remained separate countries. At any rate, he made a lot of blunders. Uh, And it was, again, his misfortune to also have some very, very aggressive Puritans who wanted to push their agenda on him, and he wanted absolutely nothing to do with this. This led to the English Civil War, which took place between 1642 and 1650. Um, It resulted in the abridgment of his reign and also of himself in 1649. Uh, 
an addendum to this is that uh, the Glorious Revolution of 1688, when Charles's second son, James II, was removed from the throne by Parliament and replaced with James's nephew, William III, and James's daughter, Mary II, this was, this was a, de a defining time in English history in that it showed that an English monarch reigns, but he does not rule. One of my professors, Malcolm Mole, very much liked to just press home the idea of rex versus lex, or the fight between the rule of authority, or a king, and lex, the rule of law. The This was it had its antecedents, of course, in uh, 1215, 800 years ago, with the Battle of Runnymede, and you have the Magna Carta, but it was dug up again by the English Puritans, the Parliamentarians during the English Civil War, and put into practice in the Glorious Revolution. And I also want to point out that, well, the American Revolution was a next step in this. For my second example, I want to mention that in many ways the American Revolution follows the Glorious Revolution, um, and where a powerful but personally weak monarch is challenged and defeated by stronger-minded opponents. Um, and again, like the Glorious Revolution, uh, and unlike most revolutions, uh, it remained in the hands of those who started it. They didn't allow it to get out of control and get into the hands of the radicals um, to to take control and to take things off to you know to <laughs> new lows, new heights, whatever you want to call it. It's an amazingly rare example. However, the French Revolution of 1789, which followed on the heels of the American Revolution and tried to use some of their of the ideals of the American Revolution, uh, is a much better example. Faced with some huge debts due to their support of the Americans during the War for Independence, the French monarchy began to, began to question why the nobility wasn't paying any taxes. All the taxes fell on the middle class and the peasantry. The church and the nobility paid none. And this became an issue because of the, the enormous debts that France had. Um, Louis XVI was a kind and timid soul. Uh, he was pushed by powerful men and women. Uh, and the irony of ironies is that the French Revolution began as the defiance of the nobility against the king. They called for the estates general to meet, this, this parliament uh, that hadn't met since, I think, 1625. It uh, quite quickly got out of hand, and, and quite it, it got wildly out of hand, um, and... By uh, 1793, you have the execution of the royal family. You have the reign of terror under Maximilien Robespierre. And if you had any royal blood in you, you were liable to have your head chopped off by the guillotine. The Parisian mob ran everything, and their bloodlust was 
insatiable. However, like most such revolutions, the um, it burnt itself out with the Thermidorian reaction. People who are very, you know, who are scholars of the French Revolution can give you a lot more detail in that than I can. But um, the revolution burnt itself out and resulted in the takeover of now a dictator in the form of Napoleon Bonaparte. So you go from a weak king who's a weak person in a strong position to this horrible revolution and slaughter to having another strong man take over who is anything but a weak personality. And sadly, this ends up being a very common sequence of events. My third example is Nicholas Romanov, or Tsar Nicholas II, Tsar of all the Russians. Uh, he was kept in personal ignorance of governance by his father. Father thought, well, he doesn't need to know anything until he's 30 years old, and then I can teach him everything when he's mature enough to understand it. Unfortunately, his father died before Nicholas made it to age 30, and therefore learned absolutely nothing from his father. Um, Nicholas just like these others, was a, a, a very powerful, uh, had a very powerful office, but he himself was a very ignorant and stubborn and, and not real bright individual. He came to the throne in 1894, uh, and he settled into becoming a very conservative monarch. His push into China in the early 1900s, after the Boxer Rebellion of 1900, uh, ended up with uh, taking a, a chunk of China in uh, 1904, and that led to the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. Uh, that resulted in the sinking of most of the Russian Navy by the Japanese Navy. In fact, it was not only the Pacific Fleet that got sunk, but... Nicholas sent the Russian Baltic fleet halfway around the world to, as soon as they met up with the Japanese Navy, they got sunk too. Uh, this uh, siege of Port Arthur, um, which is one of the areas which now defends uh, Beijing, at the time, of course, was used to intimidate Beijing, but the siege lasted for many, many months, and it gave President Theodore Roosevelt um, a good opening to, um, to broker a peace treaty between Japan and Russia, and it won him a, a, Nobel, a Nobel Peace Prize in the process. The humiliation of the defeat and the social injustices at home led to the Revolution of 1905, uh, in which Nicholas was forced to uh, address some of these injustices, and he had to concede a certain amount of representative government in the form of a Duma uh, to the people of Russia. He never really reconciled himself to that, and as the next decade or so went on, he consistently chipped away at any power or influence the Duma might have had, and, um, you know, to try to turn it into nothing but a rubber stamp. In 1914, Nicholas allowed himself to be drawn into uh, the insanity 
which resulted in World War One. It, it's kind of funny that there were these this, there's extant this series of letters between himself and his cousin uh, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, and it's Dear Nicky and Dear Willy, and they wrote them in English because well English they were Nicholas was married to a granddaughter of Victoria and. Wilhelm was a grandson of Victoria. So they carried on their correspondence in English. At any rate, uh, Russia was drawn into World War I through various, for various reasons, which I don't have time to get into, but almost immediately ran into a series of military disasters. And a series of these, which followed were laid at Nicholas's doorstep. In 1915, he decided to take personal control of the army, which was an idiotic move on his part because now, again, he's personally responsible and he can't foist off these disasters on somebody else. Doesn't have any bust to throw people under. In 1917, he abdicated the throne. Uh, his The government was taken over by Alexander Kerensky, who we mentioned earlier in the this series, uh, but in nineteen, but in November of nineteen seventeen was the Bolshevik Revolution, and that resulted in the arrest of the royal family and their execution a few months later. We also were perfectly well aware, at least I hope, of the horrors of the Russian Revolution, which we've discussed before, and then the Soviet Union, which lasted until what, 92 or so, 1992. My final example is that of Iran. In 1953, the British, in the form of the British Petroleum, were afraid of nationalization of the oil fields in Iran. And as a favor to them, the CIA overthrew the popularly elected constitutional parliamentary government um, of um, Mohammed Mossadegh, Mos- I'm not going to say that right, uh, Mohammed uh, Mossadegh. And they installed instead the uh, son of the old Shah, pre-World War II Shah, Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi II, um, who remained on the throne until uh, 1979. And um, in the process, he basically was allowed to be the absolute ruler of Iran. An interesting note is uh, the architect of the coup, which overthrew uh, uh, the Iranian parliamentary government and installed the Shah, was uh, Kermit Roosevelt Jr., grandson of Theodore Roosevelt, who we just mentioned had a Nobel Peace Prize. The Shah tried to rule by modernization, as well as using the power of the CIA to help enforce his dictates. But in the process of modernization, he outraged the clerics, the conservative Muslim clerics of Iran. But he didn't modernize quickly enough for the students. And that led to the uh, the issue of, you know, he had... Rev- um, revolutionaries on either side of him. Uh, there was a student revolt that began in, in 1979. In fact, a lot, of it's, a lot of it started in Los Angeles because there was a huge number of Iranian students there. 
I remember when they tried to, you know, burn down the Shah's mother's house in Hollywood. Uh, but the student revolution was quickly co-opted by the clerics in the form of uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was brought in, and there was a bloodletting. Uh, it it led furthermore to the takeover of the U.S. Embassy, which the Iranians saw then and probably see today as an object of oppression. Um, and that has led to a lasting enmity with the United States. One of the things that we deal with Iran is Americans tend to be very, very, very short-sighted. We don't realize that the Iranians have a certain animosity towards us based on what the CIA was doing in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And we just think, well, they don't like us for some reason. Well, they sort of have a reason for that. The moral of our story here today, though, is if you're an absolute monarch, uh, but personally weak, you're in trouble. The other moral is... If you start a revolution against such a person, watch your allies closely. Because, you know, at least as closely as you watch your enemies, they will turn on you. In every single case, other than those mentioned, of Glorious Revolution and the American Revolution, things got out of hand, the bad guys went wacko, and revolutions tend to eat their own. Don't be the first guy in line in a revolution. I hope you enjoyed this, and join us again next week for another episode of The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the Psycon Podcast Network. For more episodes, show notes, links, or to leave comments and suggestions, visit us at psycon.net slash thf. That's C-S-I-C-O-N slash T-H-F. We also invite you to please consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash or patreon.com slash badcatshows, where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad Cat. Meow. So the this overthrow of the Shah of Iran was in seventy nine. That makes perfect sense. When my we my family moved up here, my mom and dad and us kids moved up to uh, Puget Sound area here in seventy six, and my dad was is was is a civil engineer and he was working for an outfit. Uh, run by an Irishman and an Iranian, <laughs> and uh, his his one boss, um, Mr. Pazuki, brought his sister over from Tehran because she was studying. She was going to be going to the University of Washington, and she was going to be an engineer also. And she worked at the firm there as kind of a paid intern, whatever, for a couple of years, and then. The revolution, the overthrow and stuff happened, and everything got locked down and tightened up, and and she wanted to go back and see her family and her mom and dad and stuff, and they said, don't go, you'll never get out again, and she went back, 
and never did finish her degree, never got out, and was stuck there. And I don't know what happened to her. But I was, and here I was, you know, this kid in junior high watching this go down, and it was just bizarre. I couldn't understand why she would want to go back. I mean, of course, you know, that's, that was her home and her mom and dad and everything, but she probably, she'd been raised in an Iran that was basically modern like the rest of the world. And I mean, you look at pictures of, of, of Iran and, and Pakistan and wherever in the seventies. And it just looks like California. It looks like here women are walking around in their short skirts and kids are going to college and everybody's happy. And, and then, uh, now everyone's wearing burkas and women can't do anything. Yeah, I was in college in uh, L.A. at the time, and we had a number of Iranian students. But I remember watching on TV the helicopter shots of this <clears throat> riot going on outside the Shah's mother's house. And uh, these Iranian students made the error of trying to pull a female sheriff's deputy out of her car and uh, things went poorly for them at that point at the hands of the, sheriff, the L.A. sheriff's deputies. So um, it, it was an exciting time. And, you know, um, the Shah ruled with an iron fist. But again, he was this personally rather weak and timid individual, surrounded himself with some very, very tough ambitious men who had absolutely no problems with with using any methods necessary to conserve their power and it seems like whether it's you know the shah tsar nicholas louis the 16th or charles the 1st you get this just horrible situation where powerful people can take advantage of these guys and then other powerful strong-willed people can defy them and bad things happen in the long run yeah no kidding i also thought it was interesting talking about how you know be careful if you're heading up a revolution you know keep your Keep an eye on your enemies, but keep a closer eye on your allies. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yeah, I was always taught that you don't want you don't want to be in the first wave of the revolution because those guys are going to be the first up against the wall when the second wave of the revolution happens. Absolutely, revolutions eat their own. Oh yeah, we're, wa- the- we're watching that unfold right now in popular culture with what's going on. You know, as I say, we're we're recording this on May fifth, two thousand fifteen, and we're watching things going on with some of the crazy neo-feminist stuff and and I know they I know these people don't like this term but these social justice warriors who are who are just eating their own and turning on each other and and they're they're the online version of the crazed torch carrying mob oh, and at the least offense at the least perceived offense will just cannibalize their own people it's insane and and the people who think yeah no i support it i'm i'm with them i mean you know they've got some great ideas but if but they throw in with some of the luminaries 
some of the radical luminaries of this movement, not realizing that once you have openly declared your allegiance to these people and come out supporting them, that you now have, it's just a ticking time bomb. It's only a matter of time before you make a misstep and they just eat you. It's crazy. Well, as Lord Acton, of course, famously said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. But a further addendum to that is there's a lot of people attracted to power who um, who like to use it. And, um, you know, revolutions are a power vacuum. So it's going to attract people who like mm-hmm. power. Yeah. And they're going to use it. Yeah, there aren't enough George Washingtons in the world. There are too many... Uh, there are too many Lenins. Too and, many Lenins, yeah. And, and Napoleons. Yeah, and will somebody please explain to me why there's, a, why there's a giant statue of Lenin in Fremont, Seattle? Uh, probably because they're a bunch of communists. <laughs> it's bizarre. <laughs> it's it's I, maybe I, they got it cheap. I don't know. <laughs> I was going by there on the bus. It's probably been there for years. I don't get over to town very often anymore, but driving by on the bus i'm like what the heck yeah, you probably bought it for scrap prices yeah. and i don't and i don't know if the statue came this way or if somebody vandalized it and nobody's bothered to clean it up but he's got an outstretched hand and somebody has painted that hand red with red paint oh well then they're not communists yeah i don't know i you know that's not the stop i'm getting off at so i haven't had a chance to go inspect it and see if there's any kind of sign explaining what's going on there but oh, it's like truth in advertising i guess yeah weird speaking of revolutions huh marvelous stuff